Hello listeners, this is Hannah Cunningham here to quickly let you know that in this episode, we are featuring two different archive episodes about ice melt. First up, here's a segment from 2017 by Sydney Carbonic on a giant iceberg that broke off Antarctica. Okay, so we'll jump in. Okay. So my name's Sydney Carbonic, and today we're going to talk about the iceberg that broke off a few weeks ago in the Antarctica. Uh, for those of you that don't know, this rift was actually being monitored by scientists, which means that its break was in fact anticipated. The iceberg is a whopping 5,800 square kilometers wide, which to my knowledge is quite a historical feat. So I'm here today with Dr. Juliana Marson. Could you do a brief introduction of yourself and then give like a little overview of your background and yeah. Sure. So I, I was born in Brazil. I lived there until a couple of uh, years uh, ago when I moved to Edmonton. Uh, and before coming here, I studied the Arctic for the Antarctica for quite some time. Um, so I'm, my background is in oceanography and I studied mostly sea ice uh, in Antarctica. And then I came here and I was interested in understanding a little bit more about the Arctic, the other pole. So, and right now I'm working exactly with icebergs. So basically I'm working with numerical models uh, like those that we use to um, forecast the, the weather, for example, but I use them for icebergs. So basically we try to um, determine the general distribution of iceberg, in my case, around Greenland. When I was reading these articles, the number one thing that was coming across my mind was, is this a normal occurrence? By normal, if it's like every day you have an iceberg that size forming, the answer is no. <laughs> it's uh, quite rare. Uh, icebergs uh, indeed uh, are created basically every day. It's It's a natural process, but not that big. So basically, uh, um, icebergs on this of this size, they break off in the scale of decades. So the last one that was also big uh, was uh, broke off from Antarctica also in uh, 2000. So you see 17 years between one and the other. So it's quite a, a rare um, event. The one that broke off in, you said 2000? Yeah, it was twice as big as this one. Oh, really? Yeah. Okay. That was, uh, if I'm not mistaken, that was the largest one, uh, named B-15. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So it is technically normal in a sense. Icebergs forming, the smaller ones, like in the 60 meters, 100 meters length, things like this are quite, are quite normal, but this size is quite rare. So... Could you explain how a rift like this would begin? Sure. So uh, Larsen C, which is the, the ice shelf from where the iceberg broke off, there are platforms of ice that are attached to land and they float in the ocean. So basically a shelf, right? This uh, platform, it can bend because of its own weight where it's not attached to the land, it can bend because uh, of its own weight, or it can move also due to waves in the ocean and tides. So as this uh, platform bends, it 
ends up doing these uh, rifts. And also, if you have um, warming, for example, you can thin these ice shelves and make them easier to break. A lot of scientists disagree on the cause of the event. I would say probably half say that it's climate change induced. Do you know why they disagree? Any individual event is quite difficult for you to point a cause for them. So there, there was a professor of mine that gave me an example that I like very much to understand this. So let's say you live, for example, in the southeast part of the town and you come to the university every day and you have to be here like at nine o'clock in the morning. Right. And to do this, you take your car and you drive uh, White Avenue. So I know that in a larger sense, between 8.30 and 9, you'll be, you will be at some point in White Avenue. So I can predict this with a quite a level of certainty. But I cannot predict as certain if you will be what part of White Avenue you will be, if you'll be in front of one store or uh, one pub, a specific pub. It's quite difficult for me. So uh, it's the same thing with climate. Uh, you can usually predict the general trends, the large scale uh, processes, but the smaller stuff, for example, one iceberg forming is quite difficult for you to say this iceberg breaked off because of this specifically. So oh, okay. that's why there is a huge um, disagreement around this. That being said, it's uh, virtually every scientist agree that climate is changing and it's leaving its fingerprints, especially on polar regions. They are quite sensitive to uh, climate change. Antarctic Peninsula, for example, where Larsen C is located, uh, has warmed uh, three times more than the average, uh, the global average, in the last 50 years. So it's unlikely that this change has nothing to do with uh, events like this. So we cannot say that um, it's, uh, we, we are cer certain that climate change caused the iceberg to break off. Because, as I said before, icebergs form all the time. But probably this type of changes, like the warming of the air, warming of water, which is, was also already um, registered before, and also changes of the wind circulation around Antarctica that is pumping this warm water to be more in contact with these ice shelves. Those processes, they make the ice shelf thinner and thinner. So they, they're more susceptible to break. Um, so will they agree at some point on this particular event? Maybe, uh, it's not sure, but it's interesting how uh, on the, uh, in the past, not so far away ago, uh, 95, for example, Larsen A completely broke off. And then in 2002, Larsen B was gone. So we see that this uh, trend of breaking off the, the, the shelves are migrating southwards near to the pole. So maybe uh, the influence of the, this climate change is reaching more and more 
inwards the, the, the Antarctic continent. So Larsen A, Larsen B, and Larsen C, those are all adjacent ice shelves? Yeah. Uh, the two first don't exist anymore. They broke off completely. So you have the Antarctic Peninsula and uh, the northernmost, or that means that the closest one to the South America is Larsen A. And then Larsen B, and then Larsen C. And then we have D, too, but it's uh, uh, narrow. Okay. Uh, and A and B are gone. And C, now, we have the, the, the iceberg was formed, which does not mean that the, the ice shelf itself is entirely gone. It, it lost that area of the iceberg, but for now, that's it. And we are still waiting to see... Uh, how it progresses. If it will break off completely, will disintegrate complete, completely, or uh, if it will still be stable and continue now as it is. Okay, great. So when scientists are studying that iceberg, what types of evidence are they looking for to conclude that it was climate change induced? For Larson B, for example, the year that it broke off, uh, it was a quite extreme uh, year. The temperatures were uh, reached uh, record uh, numbers there. Uh, and there were lots of meltwater on top of the ice shelf. And they think that this uh, was the main evidence that pointed that was indeed the warmer temperatures that helped uh, this ice shelf to disintegrate. Because when you have lots of meltwater on the top of, of the ice shelf and you have those cracks on the ice, the meltwater enter these cracks. And once the meltwater freezes again, it expands. Like, for example, we know here when you see, for example, in the sidewalk, you see lots of cracks. And in the winter, the water enters there and then it freezes and then it cracks even more. So it's the same thing with uh, ice shelves. So if you have lots of meltwater, this meltwater will uh, enter these cracks. And once it freezes, it expands and then it widens the okay. crack. So that also facilitates uh, the formation of icebergs. So a big chunk of the article was saying that this iceberg break does not affect anyone. Is that true? Uh, for this particular iceberg, I could say it is true because the, once the iceberg melts, it won't change the sea level in any way, because it's it's like when you have water and ice in your glass, and once the ice melts, the water doesn't change the level. So basically, it doesn't affect in this sense. But uh, we have to think that if um, the the climate continues to change and events like this become more likely to happen, then uh, these ice shelves, as they break off, uh, they um, unleash the glaciers that are on land. So let me go back a little bit. The ice shelves are formed because the glaciers flow like rivers of ice to the ocean. And this ice starts accumulating and formating these ice shelves. Once you remove the ice shelf, you remove this uh, buttressing effect that the ice shelf has has on the 
on the glaciers. So the glaciers are allowed to flow faster and discharge more ice to the ocean. And the ice that are that is on the glaciers, this ice affects sea level because it's not on the ocean already, it's still on land. So as it leaves land and enters the ocean, then the sea level will rise. So once you remove the ice shelves, the ice shelves begin to, to break off and unleash these glaciers, then you were moving the ice that was once on land to the ocean, and then you increase sea ice. Uh, I'm sorry, you increase uh, sea level. Okay, so that's, that's kind of what the scientists mean when they say this ice shelf break puts the ice shelf in a vulnerable position. I guess they, they're, they're saying more in the sense of uh, the iceberg broke off the shelf and now it has a new shape. And they don't know exactly if this shape is stable. Because, for example, before the iceberg break, uh, break off, uh, the, the ice shelf was stable for at least 570 years. So it was more or less in that shape and now it decreased by 10% in size. So they don't know if this uh, ice shelf, the way it is now, is, is stable and will continue the size that it is or, may, or maybe will increase a little bit or if it will uh, disintegrate as it happened with uh, Larsen I, A, and, and B. What happens uh, with, with the stability of the ice shelf is that usually the ice have some anchor points on the topography. So, for example, for Larsen C, there are a couple of rises in the, in the bottom of the ocean that the ice shelf can anchor itself in. So if you, bro if you break a piece of, of ice and you remove these anchorage points, then maybe the ice cannot sustain itself and it breaks off more easily. So that is what they mean by stable ice shelf. So they don't know if it will remain the way it is now or if in 10, 20 or 30 years it will end up as Larsen B and disappear completely. So based on your experience, is there anything that's missing from either the conversation we're having or the conversation that the media is having about this event? Yes, um, it's it's linked to what I am studying in the moment. So uh, my interest, because I'm an ocean person, so I always look to the ocean, right? So my interest is uh, the, the impact that the icebergs have on the ocean. Uh, in this case, a large ice, uh, piece of ice was removed uh, from uh, that region, the coastal region of the Antarctic Peninsula, which means that more ocean will be exposed now to the atmosphere. You don't have that ice anymore between the two of them. And what happens is now the ocean can lose more heat to the atmosphere. And that makes the uh, ocean uh, water colder and therefore denser. Kind of like heavier, if you think. And this heavy water is important to ocean circulation because it sinks and it then creates a movement like a conveyor belt. So 
for this uh, region of uh, Antarctica, if you remove a large piece of ice like this, you probably induced more uh, formation of this dense water, and you can um, increase the the amount of movement that it generates on the ocean. Why is that movement important? Yeah, that's a very good question. <laughs> <laughs> so, of course, I'm 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 talking more in large scale here, but um, the part of the ocean circulation is driven by uh, density differences in the ocean. So, the dense water, which is cold and salty, it sinks, and warm water and less salty water rises. So when this happens, you have this movement like a conveyor belt. And you have, uh, in average, you have this movement of the ocean uh, going from the uh, tropics to the poles. So you have like two conveyor belts going from the tropics to the poles. So they sink at the poles because they become very cold at the poles and they go through the bottom of the ocean and then they rise around the, the tropics because they become warm and then they go back through the surface again towards the poles and then sink again. No one talked about that in any of the articles that I read. Yeah, yeah, it's quite interesting. And plus, so th this, that's the difference there uh, because I'm studying um, Greenland right now. And for Greenland, it's a little bit different because the icebergs are actually uh, make, make waters less dense where they melt because they introduce fresh water into the ocean and fresh water is light, so it tends not to sink. So contrary to the Antarctic uh, region where these dense waters form really close to the continent margins, uh, here in the northern hemisphere, these dense waters, they form usually uh, in the middle of the ocean. And the icebergs are reaching those regions in the middle of the ocean. So they melt there. And therefore we are trying to ascertain if the melting of these icebergs here in the northern hemisphere will affect also uh, the, the sinking of, of dense waters or not. So the two regions are a little bit different, but uh, icebergs are important in both regions uh, in moving fresh water around and um, possibly changing the ocean circulation. How does this event impact your studies? Um, so as I mentioned, I, I uh, work with uh, numerical models. And those numerical models, basically, they use equations to describe the um, movement and melting of the icebergs. Uh, it's quite difficult to observe icebergs. Uh, especially the, the small ones, because satellites cannot uh, actually differentiate between small icebergs and uh, marine ice, which we'll call sea ice. So it's quite difficult to, to understand them. But in this case, as you saw, all eyes are on this iceberg. So we'll probably have lots of data to work with and understand a little bit more of the iceberg uh, physics what drives them, what melts them, then improve our models to be able to predict with more uh, accuracy uh, where these icebergs go and how they could impact the ocean circulation 
and also for uh, shipping activities, for example. Okay, so in a sense, it kind of helps you. It does. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> uh, it's a beautiful thing. Actually. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Uh, we 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 are happy to to see that uh, happening yeah. in a sense because now is the time we have uh, more ways to watch this iceberg. Satellites were up only in the 80s. So we, it's quite recent that we have ways to observe icebergs. Before that is only when a ship passed by one and make a note on a, you know, on yeah. the, their notebook and that was it. So now we have lots of ways to track them. And so that certainly will help us to understand a little better the physics uh, and the impacts that icebergs have on, on the oceans. Okay, awesome. Well, Juliana, I want to thank you again for taking the time to come talk to us. I learned a lot. <laughs> thank you. That was so much fun. Yeah. Did you have fun? Yeah, of course. <laughs> I actually love to talk about about those things. Yeah. Well, actually, if you were a scientist, you have to love what you do, right? Mm -hmm. so it's... Um, and you have to love to talk about it. <laughs> if you're just tuning in, you're listening to an archive episode of Terra Informa. Here's our next archive piece from 2012. Okay, so Sun, uh, you were looking at radar data of Greenland's ice sheet last week. Tell me what you saw. Yes, that, that, that is correct. Yeah, let me explain to you a little bit uh, about this. Since a decade ago, I already developed uh, a method to measure the mail on the uh, on Greenland, and this mail it can be on the surface, it can be subsurface uh, sort of mail as long as there's some sort of liquid water exists in the snow and ice, and we should be able to detect that. And typically, we have like about maybe one or two day delay to look at the science data that coming down from this uh, um, Indian satellite. So I has the capability to look at the data pretty soon after it was taken. And then it was so large, it's so extensive, it's almost covered the entire Greenland ice surface that I was really surprising. And as you know, any scientist would question everything that they see, especially the one that is most strange. Mm -hmm. uh, and that's what I did. So I see, hmm, did I look at the right data uh, or not? So I'm checking on the radar data itself. I look at other places, and it seems to behave uh, like a, what it should be. And then I look earlier than that. If, if, if there is a radar problem, then when is supposed to be no mail, like uh, several weeks before that or even early in the season, there should be no mail. And indeed, that's what, uh, what I see. So I have more confidence in this. But then I'm not satisfied with that. So then I'm consult my colleague at the NASA Goddard Space Flight Center, Dorothy Hall. She has the capability look, to look at another satellite. And yes, she confirmed that. And then, even after that, we want to be more sure. So we look at another satellite from another colleague of mine, and we all confirm that, yes, this satellite uh, observation is correct in saying that this extreme male event did occur across most of the surface of the Greenland ice sheet. So these, these satellites are pinging down radar. You can see that there's water. Now... Uh, give us some perspective for people who don't know much about how much Greenland can melt in the summer. Why did those measurements that you looked at surprise you? When when we say that 
this is unprecedented mail in the satellite data record. Uh, that's where we have the capability of observation, not at one or two or three or ten locations, but across the entire ice sheet. And that capability can only be provided by satellite. And from satellite data record, which we have like just a little bit over three decades, that's how far we can go back. Mm. Uh, so in that decade, we never see anything that is close to the fact that almost the entire Greenland ice sheet uh, has suffer or undergoing uh, some sort of mail either from surface or subsurface. So that's why it was so surprising. And let me put this in, in, in the sense that you see why we were so surprising. Now, uh, you in uh, Canada, right? So I imagine that you go to a, a mountain, let's say some mountain is even higher than 3,000 meters. At the central, central Greenland is about uh, 3,200 meters mm. or more than 10,000 feet, right? Mm -hmm. If you go to the peak of that kind of mountain and then you move that mountain, not at Edmonton, but move it into the Arctic, so you can see how high and how cold it is, and yet it melts there. So mm. if you put that into perspective, you can see how surprising this, this is. And so that at the central location of the Arctic, and see if you see the entire big gigantic uh, area of Greenland, like is, is, is about, what, 2 million square kilometers, that, that is covered or undergone uh, this melting process. And that's why it's so surprising. Wow. Uh, now, melting on the ice sheet's surface doesn't necessarily mean that the whole ice sheet is melting, right? How significant? That is correct. The, the amount of melting, it depends on where you are. If you are high at the altitude and latitude, it gets maybe just a little bit above freezing. So then um, you say that, yes, so how, how much of these water, right? Mm -hmm. If you think about this in this way, say if you at some location uh, on the ice sheet and you look right underneath of your uh, feet, and you see, oh, maybe just a little bit melt, there's uh, some water in there. But if you think about this big, gigantic surface area, a little bit of this water would go in a catchment area, which can be like hundreds of thousands of kilometers, and then many of those uh, uh, water, ECBC water, will go into downstream into the stream. And then it collects, once it's collected into the stream, is become a very large amount of water because it's integrated or it's collected the water from the large area and put it into the stream. And once that occurs, it cause, can cause really serious flooding. And probably you already hear on the news about Kangalusia and the, the Watson River is overflowing, it's flooding and even blow away a bridge there. Mm -hmm. So yes, for local people, the way that these water come down can be really important. It's already blew the bridge away, right? Mm -hmm. What's behind the temperature rise this summer? I, I mean, I, I think it's important to talk about the difference between weather events and, and climate change trends. Um, right, right, yeah. So when you look at any kind of change, temperature change, climate change, or whatever, you would see that there are two different things. The average mean long term, which is telling you whether you are in warming trend or cooling trend, right? And the other one is suddenly you have an extreme warm day and extreme cold day. That's an extreme event. So for the Greenland case here, we look at the extreme event. So there can be a, a, a long-term mean and there an, uh, uh, an extreme event. So we're talking about two different things. So it's, it's an extraordinary event, but uh, just one piece of the larger trend that you guys are observing. Uh, 
when you talk about extreme event, you can talk about how often it occurs, and when once it occurs, what is the intensity of that, right? Mm-hmm. If, and this is a big if, and we don't know about this yet, in the future, if you have more events, and if you have a more intense in each of these events, uh, then it would be uh, more serious. Whether or not these events would occur more often and more intense, we, we don't know that. We just see this extreme uh, event like last uh, number of days, not, not, not for too long yet, right? And if you look back in the history, as you see in the NASA press release, the previous one uh, was in 1889, so that's uh, more than 100 years ago. Uh, but with that kind of thing, what I can say for now is that this extreme event qualify or even over-qualify as the male of the century across Greenland. Terra Informa is a production of CJSR 88.5 FM and is created by a team of volunteers. You can find us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at Terra Informa. For more episodes, visit our website, terrainforma.ca. Catch you next week right here on Terra Informa.